Well, it must be springtime. You guys are still chatty. That's great. Good morning. Well, see, now you're not chatty with me. I feel sort of put off. Good morning. Thank you. Oh, that's good. Hey, we're still in Ecclesiastes, uh, this series that we've been in for several weeks now. That's just the way it is. That's kind of the theme of the book that we've been talking about. Uh, Solomon takes a look at life under the sun, life on the human plane, life the way that we find it, just the way it is, and takes an honest look and observes what's there and draws some conclusions for us. And uh, we're going to continue on in that this morning. We've got just a few weeks uh, actually left in the book. But uh, before, we, before we dive in, let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do thank you that um, you are a constant, that you do not change. You are not like the shifting shadows of seasons or, of the, or even of the lights that we see in the heavens. You are steady. You are predictable. You hold all things together. You sustain all things. This world is here because you made it and you uphold it. Thank you, Father, that we can count on you, that we can rely upon you, that we don't even have to invite you to be here with us because you are with us. For those of us who have trusted in you, your Holy Spirit dwells within us. Your presence is here. And so, Father, now we give ourselves to you. We attune ourselves to you. We draw near to you. And we want to be taught by your Holy Spirit through your word. Thank you for being the same yesterday, today, and forever. It makes all the difference so that we know how to relate to you. And we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 9, that's where we are this morning. Um, when I was a college student at Biola University in Southern California, uh, the movie Braveheart came out. You guys remember this? Some of you are doing the math and you're trying to date how old I am. I'm going to be 36 this month. That's how old I am. So still a young guy, although I'm finding out that nothing makes you old faster than being young. That's how I feel. Um, but that movie came out and uh, it was quite a popular movie. You can imagine how popular it was for uh, just a group of, a group of testosterone-driven college-aged young men. Okay? And when it came out, when it arrived, we were smitten. You know, uh, and it became it made quite a splash um, for a lot of us. And um, after it got out of the main theater and then went over to the dollar theater in town, which was just about what we could afford, you know, uh, for two dollars you could go on Wednesday nights and watch Braveheart for three and a half hours or however long it was. And um, and so it basically became a dorm tradition every Wednesday night that we would go over for two bucks and watch this movie. And then it sort of just took off, and guys started painting themselves up with body paint and making homemade kilts out of old flannel shirts, and we would storm this place and, um, and watch this movie. Uh, I don't think I ever did the body paint or, or flannel kilt, although I'm not above it, but I don't think I ever did it. Um, but we loved this movie and, uh, and just had a lot of fun with it, and I still like this movie. And there's a couple lines in it that are just powerful about life and about leadership, and one of them in particular is William Wallace's classic, Every Man Dies, But Not Every Man Truly Lives. Right? Remember hearing this? This is a good statement. In fact, I would argue it's quite an ecclesiastical statement. 
It, after all, it acknowledges the brevity of life. It's short. It's coming to an end, maybe sooner than you think. And how will you go about living life? How will you be successful in it? What does a full life look like? How do you live life well? How do you truly live? If we all know it's coming to a conclusion at some point, how will we know that we have lived life well? And I think that's, that's quite a good statement and a very ecclesiastical one at that. Uh, I would rephrase it a little bit for our purposes this morning, and I would say this, this is kind of the bullet that I'm trying to show you this morning, that we're really not prepared to live until we're prepared to die. We are not prepared to live, to live life as God intended it, until we're prepared to die and to face him. So chapter 9 really confronts us with the reality of death. Good morning, it's almost spring, we're going to talk about the reality of death. I'm going to try to do that with a smile on my face. Um, And one of the reasons I can do that is because Solomon takes that point and he goes the next step to then command the enjoyment of life. Because death is real, we command the enjoyment of life. And then again, he sort of prepares us for the unpredictability of life. In a lot of ways, the message we're looking at this morning is somewhat redundant, and that's the risk of preaching through a book because the themes of the book come up again and again and again. But that's good because we need to be reminded of of what we know and what we believe. And Solomon does that. Before he brings everything to a conclusion in chapters 11 and 12, he kind of goes back and recaptures some of these themes that he's already He's already hit. And so the first six words of chapter 9, right there in verse 1, say this. So I reflected on all of this. And those words, those are verbal cues for you as a Bible reader to look at what preceded this. Good Bible reading is always done in context. We want to know what we're reading in light of the whole, in light of the whole message. And so this book says, so, or this, this line says, I reflected on all of this. That's a verbal cue for us to look back. So that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look back just to the, what preceded this in chapter 8, right at the end. And there at the end of chapter 8, we found a frustrated philosopher, King Solomon, trying to make sense of life. And we, we pick him up in all of his frustration at verse 16. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. And so here we have uh, Solomon at the end of chapter 8 basically telling us that even wisdom, even God-given wisdom as Solomon possessed, has its limits and leaves one frustrated and leaves one with questions and leaves one with uh, searching for answers. And he's basically saying the harder he looks at the world, the more he investigates it, the more he looks for patterns and rhythms and all of this stuff, the more confused he gets. And in a way, he's kind of like a scientist who is running the experiments again and again and again and again, getting different results every time. Frustrated because there doesn't seem to be any control in, in this experiment. And so he can't get it to reproduce a, a predictable result. And, and in the same way, Solomon basically acknowledges, I cannot master and manage life, even with wisdom, 
in such a way that it will produce a lasting and predictable result. And so that's what we find him. We find a frustrated philosopher at the end of chapter 8, and then he rolls in to chapter 9. But what's interesting to me about Solomon is that even though he has this frustration throughout the book and this exasperation with looking at and examining life and trying to figure it out, uh, the mysteries and his frustration don't lead him to despair. It doesn't lead him to atheism or hedonism or something like that, but rather it, it causes him to entrust himself to God. To entrust himself to God. Uh, and, and his message really becomes one of consolation for us and for those of us who find ourselves with some of his same frustrations. I think this is interesting because it would be really easy for someone like Solomon or for us to say, hey, there's things that happen in life that don't make sense. And I don't like them. And I don't see the evidence of God's hand if these kinds of things are going on. And so one option might be to just throw up your hands and say, well, there must not be a God if I can't see evidence of him in the affairs of this life. On the other hand, he could say, somebody could say, well, I, I, I think there's a God. I absolutely believe that, but I don't see him involved with us in this life. I don't see that God seems to care about us too much in this life because of all of the injustices. And if God doesn't care about us, then I'm not going to care about him. And I'm going to do whatever I want and wring every pleasure out of life as I can, thumbing my nose at God. That's the hedonist. Or the third position and the, one, the third option, the one that Solomon takes is, I don't understand this life, but I trust that God does. And that's basically what he's saying here in verse 1, that our life is in God's hands. Our life is in God's hands. Look at verse 1. So I reflected on all of this, what we just talked about, his frustrations, and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. We've already acknowledged up to this point that this is not a do-good, get-good world or a do-good, get-good life. It doesn't work out like that. Sometimes the righteous get what the wicked deserve and vice versa. Righteous living does not guarantee that it will go well with us. And when it does go well with us, that's not the proof that we have lived a righteous life. It's, it doesn't work like that. Uh, there are many contemporary philosophies out there that promise some kind of a path to prosperity. These good fortune, good karma, God helps those who help themselves kinds of philosophies. This isn't what we find in the scriptures. These are man-made humanistic philosophies, um, but they're not biblical. Solomon wants us to know that the righteous, flat out, honestly, the righteous are not always rewarded in this life. That's just the way it is. Uh, and he, that's basically what he means by his statement here. We don't know whether love or hate will come to us in this life. We don't know what awaits our, our actions. Uh, but Solomon does assure us that we can have confidence that God has everything well in hand. We do not presume God's disposition towards us based on the circumstances of our life. You've heard this before, right? The car broke down. God must be really angry with us. I got the good parking spot right up front. 
God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. You know, and that's kind of a lot of the way that people seem to project back onto God what he thinks based upon their circumstances. Um, We're comforted here. We're consoled that even when things are hard and disappointing and we feel helpless that we don't need to despair, but that we can trust that this is God's world and he has it well in hand. He's always in control. We're always in his hands. And the scriptures use this expression of God, the hand of God. It uses it many, many times to communicate some wonderful things, some wonderful truths about God, about his nature, and uh, how he acts towards us. It communicates his power, his love, his tenderness, his supervision, his control. Remember when you're, when you're just a little kid and you'd reach up and grab dad's hand? or grandpa's hand, and it was just so much bigger than yours. Whenever I hold my son's hand, Augustine, and we're walking through a parking lot or whatever, he he always wants to grab my hand, but he doesn't grab the whole thing. He just grabs my pinky because that's about all he can wrap, wrap his hand around. You know, and that's really what we are. We We're in God's hand, and his hand is much bigger than ours. And we're comforted and consoled here by Solomon with these kinds of statements. It is, however, a bit of a blow to our pride, isn't it? Uh, Solomon would have us understand that when it comes to life under the sun, life on the human plane, we're really not masters of our own fate. We're really not in control of it all. We really cannot make everything come out to our desired ends. Control over this earthly life is an illusion. Uh, And that is not always easy to accept. That's a frustrating reality. Uh, And I love the words of St. Augustine about this. He says that God, being God, offends human pride. We don't like to admit that we're out of control of even our own lives. Uh, But again, Solomon is comforting us with the fact that God has everything well in hand. He has our life in his hands. And then he goes on to talk about, deep breath, he goes on to talk about death. And he wants us to realize that it is universal. And you and I don't really like to talk about death. We avoid this. We don't even like to say the word, and that's evidenced by all of the euphemisms that we come up for it, that somebody has passed away. Someone has passed on, or they went to a better place, or they expired like they were milk. Uh, Or they've returned home, or we say something even less reverent, like they kicked the bucket or they bought the farm. And I don't even fully understand where all of these come from. Um, We don't like saying the word death. We don't like acknowledging either our or somebody else's mortality. It's just too blunt, too raw. Um, And it seems really to bother Solomon here as well. Not just that we die, but sort of the idea that death seems to come so indiscriminately to everyone. And that bothers him. Listen to the frustration of his words in verse 2. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked. The good and the bad. The clean and the unclean. Those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. 
This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. So you can hear the frustration in his voice. And basically what he's telling us here is that death comes for the righteous and the wicked. It comes indiscriminately to everyone. And that bothers him. It bugs him. Uh, The righteous don't escape death, and it doesn't get expedited on to the wicked. That's just not how it is. And he actually goes as far as to call it evil in verse 3. You see that? This is the evil. And everything that happens under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. And you know what? I think, as I, as I reflect on that, I think he's absolutely right. I think Solomon is dead right, if I can use the pun. I think death is absolutely evil. I want you to reflect on that for just a minute. Death is evil. We console ourselves with statements in times of loss and grief with something along the lines of, Death is a natural part of life. Death is just a transition. We say these things, right? And I want to tell you, I don't think that's the case. I think death is by its nature absolutely evil. It is abhorrent. It is evil that we die. The scriptures, in fact, tell us that death is not God's creation, Death, rather, is a reality that mankind has created for himself. God made us. He made a perfect world without sin, without death. He made us to be in relationship with him. He made us to live with him, to love him, to dwell with him, and to enjoy him. It's not until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden by rebelling against God's command and took the fruit that they brought sin and death into the world. They brought it in as an intruder, as a contamination. They introduced it into God's perfect world. Death is, by nature, evil. And we find in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives it the title, The Last Enemy. Isn't that a good description? He says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we are assured in that book and in that chapter that God will destroy the last enemy. And in a couple of weeks, we get to go over to Herring Auditorium as a whole church and celebrate Easter and the resurrection of our Savior and see that not only was sin conquered, but death conquered because of his, the power of his resurrection. And it is conquered for you and I as well. That is the basis of the hope that we have, that death, our last enemy, will be destroyed. And the basis of that hope is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. I can't wait to preach on Easter morning. The Apostle Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Solomon doesn't even know these truths yet. He doesn't know of the cross. He doesn't know of Jesus. He can't look back and see that death is conquered there. He just kind of is examining life as he finds it, life on the human plane. And so his perspective of life is honest and true, but it's limited, isn't it? As Solomon looks around and examines life, he sees that over here, his righteous good friend dies prematurely. 
And as he looks over here, he sees an innocent one, a young one who died in some indiscriminate sort of way. And then he looks over here and he sees this wicked, pagan, selfish man and he lives long in his selfishness. And he throws up his hands and says, death comes to everyone, but not with the pattern or the regularity that we would expect it to. And so he's grieved. He's grieved about death. And as I said, he's dead right. Because Solomon, like us, lives in a sin-saturated world. And everywhere he looks, he sees it. And he's frustrated by it. I want to give you one more illustration to think about this. I want you to think about in the New Testament in John chapter 11, when Jesus was called to go see his good friend Lazarus who was dying. Do you remember this? And he said, we're not going to go. In fact, this is going to result in his death and for God's glory. He waits until he dies. Then he goes to visit him. And when he's there and he sees everything, we're given the shortest verse in the Bible, in the English, which says, Jesus wept. Right? Why did Jesus weep? He, he knew Lazarus was going to die. He also knew he was going to raise him. Why did he weep? I think it was because as he looked around and he saw the sisters and he saw the people and he saw the grief and he saw the pain, I think he was broken to his heart of the nastiness of the sin and death in this life, which is not how God made it. It is not the shalom that God made. It's not the way it should be, but it is the way that it is. And I think that's why Jesus wept. And Solomon, even though he sees this and he doesn't have the answers of the cross and of the resurrection and all these things, uh, amazingly, he doesn't despair about it. Somehow, even with his limited perspective, he's able to trust God and entrust himself to God. And he begins to speak about the sanctity of life rather than just going off the rails and living with some reckless abandon. And, and what he talks about here is Solomon basically commands us to enjoy and to cherish life and the importance of it, and the sanctity of it, and that it is, in fact, special. Solomon would have us enjoy our next breath as a gift of God. He would have us enjoy the warmth of the sun, if it should ever arrive, the warmth of the sun on our face. He would, he would have us enjoy the song of the birds and drink in the beauty of the mountains and of sunsets and sunrises, and he would have us rejoice when winter finally breaks and gives way to spring and then explodes into a wonderful summer, he would have us enjoy a savory meal with friends. He would have us enjoy hard work and a good product and the satisfaction that comes from a job well done. He would have us enjoy all of these things. And the question I want to ask you is, church, why don't we do this better? When did the church become a group of glum, sour-faced people? Why do we even have that reputation? We have peace with God. And we know that this life and every day that we get is a gift from Him to enjoy. We should be the best celebrators on the earth. People should look at us and not see a fake plastic smile, but one of deep and significant lasting joy. They should see it and they should say, what's different about you? Tell me why you can smile that big and that sincerely. That ought to be us in this world. And unfortunately, it's not, always, it's not always the case. But Solomon goes on and says, listen, we only live once here. And he talks about the sanctity and the specialness of life. Look at verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope. 
Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. See, here he shows us that Solomon is a dog person and not a cat person. Another reason to like him. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Solomon wants us to know, in a sense here, that living is better than dying. To enjoy the breath in our lungs as long as God gives it to us. The Apostle Paul adds to this teaching, doesn't he? He nuances it in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the perspective of the New Testament believer who's placed his trust in Jesus Christ and is forgiven of sins and assured of the resurrection and being with him forever. Solomon can't quite say that yet. He can only look at life on the human plane. And I want to stop right here for just a moment. I want to talk about the sanctity of life and the importance of it because I think it's very easy to get frustrated in this world and throw up our hands and say, there's injustice, it's not fair, it's flat out hard, And there may be someone in the room this morning that's saying, I'm not sure I want to go on and continue to live it day after day. And I want to just stop and pause and talk about the sanctity of life for just a moment. In Psalm 139, the psalmist declares that God knit us together in our mother's womb. He knit us together. My wife is a knitter. And I watch her work. I watch her knit and purl and count and do all this stuff. There's a lot of purpose and intent behind that. And the psalmist tells us that God knit us together in our mother's womb. In other words, he imagined you as a person. His mind's eye conceived of you. He envisioned your body. He envisioned your mind. He envisioned your skills and your disposition. And he thought you a worthwhile being to create. And he followed through and executed on that and fashioned you together because you are valuable and desirable to him. He ordained the days of your lives, even the really hard ones, even the seasons that you might wish away. The psalmist concludes with the words, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that tells us a lot about God and about his nature and how he feels towards us. It tells us that God loves us. And I would even argue more than that, that God actually likes us, which might mean more than his love because we all know theologically he has to love us. That's his job description, right? But that he likes us. He has some affection for you. He purposely, purposefully knit you together. He sent his son to die for you. And in Zephaniah 3.17, we're told that God will one day over all of his people sing over them. God is going to serenade you. That's how he feels towards you. That's how beloved you are. And so Solomon would have us enjoy life. Because we only live once, he would have us enjoy life. And he goes on in verse 7 to say, Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life, remember meaningless being fleeting, transitory, elusive. This meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life. And in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
For in the grave where you are going, there's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Friends, this is the sixth time in the book that Solomon has commanded to us the enjoyment of these kinds of things in life. I want you to take your Bible for just a second and look at it. Just examine it. Examine the cover. Examine the back. There's no volume knob on it, is there? Anybody, anybody's Bible have a volume knob? She's got one. You know what it is? Repetition. It's repetition. When the Bible repeats something, it is God's way of shouting at you to hear this. When you get a text message or an email and it's in all caps, you know you're being yelled at, right? In the scriptures, when we find repetition like this in a book, the sixth time he says this, God is saying, hear me. So as Solomon is telling us this, he's not being, he's not being sarcastic, he's not being hedonistic or pessimistic. He really means this. He means for us to get on with the enjoyment of life and to enjoy these good things as God's gifts to us. In other words, life's enjoyments are not guilty pleasures, but godly pleasures. It is amazing to me how quickly we want to turn God into some kind of cosmic killjoy. I don't know how you picture him or his countenance or his expression on his face, if I can say that. I'm not sure how you imagine God's disposition towards you. But I think unless it includes an overwhelming joy and happiness and satisfaction and love and affection for you, then you're missing it and you misunderstand God. Listen to the way uh, Eugene Peterson captures Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. He says, Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. For there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you're most certainly headed. Isn't that great? That guy can write. I am envious of that. Um, But I want you to think about the world in which we live and the life that we have here for a second. God did not have to make the world beautiful to the eye, did he? God did not have to make intimacy between a husband and a wife pleasurable. God did not have to make food taste good. God did not have to make friendships to be so meaningful to us. He did not have to make work actually satisfying. He did not have to make music so evocative. Think of the the, the band, the symphony we heard last week in here over Herring Auditorium. He did not have to make this world full of fun and beauty and laughter. He didn't have to do it. But God knit into this world a remarkable amount of pleasure and enjoyable things. And I think it is an important skill to be good at enjoying the holy pleasures that God has knit into this life. In fact, uh, Gary Thomas has said this, when we deny ourselves God's good pleasures, we make ourselves susceptible to the world's illicit pleasures. Isn't that good? Listen to it again. When we deny ourselves God's good pleasures, 
we make ourselves susceptible to the world's illicit pleasures. In other words, be good at enjoying life as God has made it to be enjoyed. And then we'd like to end right there, but Solomon doesn't let us. He's going to give us one last little kicker at the end here. And he basically says, hey, uh, it's life's still unpredictable. <laughs> you still aren't going to have it mastered here. Look at verse 11. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. To bring it back to the bullet point that we started with here, we're really not prepared to live until we're prepared to die. I have two points of application for you today. For some of you, you're sitting here and you do not have a relationship with God. You have not trusted in Christ as your Savior. You've lived life stiff-arming Him, thinking that by your good actions, your good intentions, that you would be okay. You will never know peace with God. You will never know true and lasting joy in this life until you have asked for forgiveness for your sins and trusted in Christ. And have the assurance that only the Holy Spirit can give you when he comes into you and makes you a child of God. And gives you the hope and the confidence of a resurrection in the future. So that you will forever be with God and that you will be cleansed of all of your sin. That only comes through trusting in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted him as your Savior, I would urge you so that you might enjoy this life and eternal life to place your faith in Him, to repent of your sins, and to turn to Him for forgiveness. And if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to stay afterwards and talk with you about that. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want that for you. For some of you, you've trusted in Christ, and so your application this morning is this. This week, I want you to enjoy life. Uh, Andrew, would you put that slide up on the screen here? Uh, This is the church's Facebook page. I don't know if you knew we even had one, but I'd ask you to write that down really quick because you're going to need it in order to do this next assignment. The assignment is is this. Uh, Actually, what's behind this is some, some good friends here in the church sent me a picture this last or a couple weeks ago. And they sent me a picture of themselves out hunting. They're on a snow machine. uh, And the wife had just killed a moose. I think it was her first one. And they sent me a picture and said, we're out enjoying life per our pastor's instructions. (laughs) I thought, that's great. And so this is your homework assignment. Now, for some of you, it may not be moose hunting. I understand that. But your assignment is this, to go out and to enjoy life. To grab a friend, grab your family, and do something fun and enjoyable together and share one of God's good gifts for his glory and enjoy it. Take a picture of yourself and post it on Facebook and say, here's Eric sledding with the kids to the glory of God. That's your assignment. God wants us to enjoy this life. He's given it to us. Not only on this earth, but for eternity. And that's why Christ came. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for seeing you as some cosmic killjoy, as some mean celestial ogre, when you've done everything imaginable to show us that you are a good and kind and loving and gracious God by even fashioning us together, by giving us life, by putting us in community, by giving us family and giving us all of the God-ordained enjoyments of life. You show us your goodness. Forgive us for not seeing it. Father, for those that don't know you, this morning may they place their trust in you. May they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for forgiveness and for eternal life and come to know the true joy that there is in being a child of God, assured of eternal life. And for those of us, Father, that have crossed over that line and trust you, may it show up on our face and in our countenance and in our life and our actions and our relationship as those who have been brought near and changed. So we want to be good at enjoying life. Thank you for your word, which speaks to us on all matters of life and faith. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.